Hello and welcome to Way to Freight. In this series, we explore the intricate yet powerful connections between the shipping and commodities markets. And today's episode is all about the money and the money in the shipping market and what it's being spent on in terms of the fleet investment. The wild year of 2020 has had interesting effects on the cash piles under the ship owners mattresses. So we shall investigate if there is enough cash in shipping markets like tankers and dry bulk, what it might get spent on and what does that all mean for the freight rates in both short and long term perspective. And to guide me through such a complex yet fun topic, I'm joined here today by a renowned expert in this field, the one and only Randy Givens, who is the Senior VP of Equity Research at Jeffress. It's good to have you here, Randy. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Alex. So, Randy, 2020 has introduced some outstanding volatility to freight rates. That goes primarily for tanker rates, which had a massive spike to historical highs in the spring of last year, before sliding back to the bottom, of course. And this had quite an impact on the trade routes. For instance, I'm just looking back at the August freight data for VLCC route from US Gulf Coast to China. And at certain point in spring last year, the freight costs were equal to over 40% of the WTI price for FOB Houston. These days, it's closer to 4%, so quite volatile. Uh, and the dry freight enjoyed a recovery in recent months as well, especially in the Cape size segment. And hence, my first question for you is, with all these ups and downs, how are the balance sheets looking for ship owners right now? It's a great question, Alex. So at the beginning of the year, um, the you know the the starting 2020, the balance sheets for a lot of these crew tankers were you know very stretched, you know because 2016, 17, 18 um, was not very good. You also had um, a lot of debt that was coming due in the near term. You also had a lot of expansion happening in those you know prior years leading up to kind of the start of 2020. Um, so because of all those factors, you know, your, your leverage ratios, your net debt to EBITDA, your net debt to cap, um, and then your just uh, overall debt that was maturing, your short-term debt was pretty high numbers. Now, the fourth quarter, strong earnings helped, um, but again, not, not meaningfully. Now, that said, throughout 2020, especially the first six months, really, of 2020, rates were just at these incredible levels. Right. So what basically happened was a lot of these tanker owners made more money in six months than they normally do in four years. Right. Five years worth. So because of that, as of today, right, balance sheets are much improved. Uh, your net debt to caps are in the 30s instead of the high 40 percent range. Um, your net debt to, to EBITDA has certainly come down pretty meaningfully uh, because the EBITDA has grown pretty massively, and the net debt has come down, right? So all that said, there was a lot of refinancings uh, that happened, obviously, in this very low interest rate environment that has helped a lot as well. So for now, you know, it obviously will depend on how long the this current weak rate environment lasts uh, mm. into 2021. But for now, the balance sheets are in very strong shape. Is it the same for dry bulk? Because obviously dry bulk struggled for quite a, quite a while. The tankers yeah. too, but... Yep, uh, currently much better shape as well, especially compared to like 2016 when the world was ending for dry bulk. You had, mm -hmm. I don't know, six or seven of these, you know, let's call it 10 to 12 relatively large publicly traded dry bulk companies having to do some emergency 
kind of equity offerings. A few had to file for bankruptcy. So 2016 was just a disaster, right? Balance sheets were incredibly stretched. Uh, 2017, 18, 19, things improved a little bit. But again, in 2020, obviously you had some massive rate volatility there with everything that was happening in Brazil and in Bali and what have yeah. you. Um, that said, currently, those are in much better shape as well. Now, just to compare to tankers, relative, not as in good of shape as the tankers are. However, when it comes to where you were at the bottom, let's call it 2016 versus where you are today, mm. you know, vastly improved. Yeah. So that brings a very interesting situation, right? So there is an improved, uh, I, I guess, cash situation for ship owners in, in both in both markets. Uh, so as we all know, the um, uh, they prefer ship owners or ship, or ship operators to spend the investment money on ships, right? That's uh, that's that's their prime prime source of um, investment investment targets. And apart from you know the cash that they already have uh, or accumulated themselves there's also a question of financing or yep. sources of capital sources of uh, getting that uh, that um, extra extra finance to uh, to secure the fleets how is the situation uh, in those terms is it easy to find finance to um, to uh, to get investments in the vessels or investors are still cautious about it Right. So it really depends. Right. So uh, I'm going to go into a few different topics here and feel free to kind of uh, cut me off or interrupt. But yeah. when you look at vessel financing, historically, it has been through European banks, right? Commerce Bank, NordLB, uh, BNB, ABN AMRO, whomever. Um, and they would give on average 65, maybe 70 percent loan to value on a ship. So if you're ordering a, a, a tanker for $80 million, you can get, I don't know, around $55 million in debt. If you are ordering a, a cape size for $50 million, okay. you can get around you know, 30 to $35 million in debt. Uh, and that's on a speculative new build order without any long-term charters. Mm. Um, and they were giving that out. Uh, now, it was historically, let's look at the last 10 years on average, um, probably LIBOR plus maybe 500 uh, basis points. Nowadays, it's, you know, the rates are obviously much improved. LIBOR is down to nothing, right? Maybe 30 basis points. Um, whereas the margins are certainly tighter, right? We're seeing LIBOR plus 250, uh, maybe 300 on the high end, even 200 on the low end. So your margins have come in as well. That said, a few things have changed, right? Your LTV, your loan to value, you're only getting maybe 60%. Um, and then secondly, the banks are being a lot more selective, right? Before, you could have five vessels and get financing for all five. Nowadays, the banks are certainly looking at the, the scale of your fleet. Um, obviously, if you're, you're publicly traded, that will probably give you a little premium as well because you have access to, to public equity in that regard. Um, so it's it's really a story of kind of have and have nots, and this is and how much sorry how much when when banks do look at this how much are they looking at let's say projections of uh, how the freight market is going to be doing? Yeah, you know the, very yeah. much. Yep, they're certainly looking at kind of a uh, discounted cash flow. Now a lot of times they'll just use what has the ten year average spot rate been, or the ten year average one year time charter been, or even a five year average, right? Uh, and kind of using these relatively conservative numbers um, to kind of back into that 
And again, that is also why they're giving a lower loan to value. Because if you're saying a, a new build cape and you're getting $50 million to, to pay for it and you're getting, let's call it 60% financing, that's only 30 million bucks. Mm. And they're going to make you amortize that, right? Probably mm. on a 15, if not 10 year profile uh, with a bullet at the end of five to seven years, right? So they're going to make sure even in a very dire case, um, even with quick depreciation, that the kind of loan to value stays below 100, if not below 80, even in a, a down market. Right. Okay. And uh, in, in, ter- in terms of actual when, um, these tools that you, that you might have to make sure that you're getting your money back as, uh, as, as an investor, is it most, most you make sure that there is a time charter agreement for the vessel which you're getting invested in? Is there like any other prime tools, I guess, uh, to, to make sure that people are good for the money? Now, when you say as an investor, are you meaning as a bank who's financing? So, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, sorry, I mean, okay. I mean as a financier, yeah. Yep, as a lender, um, right. You know, uh, you don't necessarily need time charters, right? This isn't LNG carriers or container ships uh, historically, right? Obviously, right now, uh, in the past few months, LNG has just been gangbusters and then container ships, uh, the best market we've ever seen. Mm. Uh, but historically, you would want time charters on those vessels. So when we're keeping this conversation on tankers and dry bulk, the vast majority of the market is on spot, right? We're talking 65 to 85% of vessels, you know, canvassing the world are doing spot cargoes or maybe some contracts of a freight mints. So not on long-term charters. So with that, I don't think you are, are looking for or need that. The real, you know, issue is just making sure you don't have residual risk. And that's why your average life of these loans has shortened your amortization profile has steepened, right, has increased, and your loan to value has decreased. Mm -hmm. So those three metrics make it a very kind of, um, you know, uh, reduced risk lending opportunity for the banks. And that's that's also why you you can get such cheap money, right? Yeah. If you're loaning at a 60% LTV for five years with an amortization profile of 10 years, on a life of a vessel that usually depreciates over 20 years, right? That's very safe. Uh, so you can give LIBOR plus, you know, 200 basis points. Yeah. In terms of investors, since, uh, since I did misspeak uh, miss, miss uh, earlier, do you think there are more investors now coming into the shipping market actually trying to uh, invest, let's say, in the fleets? And what kind of players those are, I wonder? Especially, I guess, it becomes more. Um, attractive when you see volatility and when you see big rate spikes even short term and uh, some people may uh, perceive this as the market which could have potential in it so i wonder what players are getting attracted after 2020 into the shipping market as a uh, new new players yeah so um let me back up a step here as well so there was a big push by private equity um into shipping in like 2000 and let's call it 12 to 16, right? Um, now, in recent quarters uh, and even months, you've seen this Prexit, right? This private equity exit out of mm-hmm. shipping. So that that kind of source of capital is no longer there. And again, as I mentioned earlier, your large commercial banks in Europe have been shedding their shipping exposure as well. So the people who have come in 
have been, you know, a lot of these sale leaseback agencies, a lot of these Asian financial institutions um, with, again, who, who sale leasebacks are, are doing um, a, a lot of that activity in terms of new build financing or even secondhand financing, resale financing. Um, so that is one side of the the kind of investor, uh, but I would call it more financier lender profile. Yeah. In terms of investors, right? You know, we are recovering these common equities. So in terms of common equity investing, you've seen a very diverse group, right? You've seen energy investors, you've seen um, industrial investors, uh, we've seen value investors, right? Where where you're looking at in the world where over the last I don't know, a couple of years, it's been all about momentum, growth, tech, you know, all of these kind of phenomenons. Our view is with a higher kind of a likelihood of inflation here in the next few quarters and years, um, and with more of a switch to value, right? Economically sensitive, energy related, global trade driven companies, uh, asset heavy in an inflationary environment. Mm. That is perfectly suited for shipping, right? So that's why you, you've certainly seen a lot of new entrants just here in the last few months into shipping. Now, when you see these kind of crazy numbers back in, you know, March, April for tankers going to 200 plus thousand a day for a BLCC, um, there's certainly been just any investors just kind of coming in. You know, I went on CNBC and there's been a bunch of t- tanker owners on CNBC and it's been kind of the 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 mass media has been really catching wind of it back when floating storage was just in vogue and everyone started talking about the contango, right? Um, so that was a huge influx of values, both in hot, trading hot and times. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Now, that was a big party, and then there's been a big hangover in the last few months because, you know, you had this massive build in floating storage and inventory levels and these other things. So that has kind of traded off uh, as of late. That said... When you take a, a longer term view and when you look at kind of value, when you look at, you know, where we are in terms of, you know, asset values being at very low levels, both on tankers and dry bulk. You know, I was looking this morning just to kind of compare some of the, the numbers and historically the difference between a, you know, new build vessel and a five year vessel is about 20 million dollars for VLCC. Um, and about, I don't know, $10 million for a cape size. Well, now that difference is about $25 million for a VLCC mm. and about $20 million for a cape size. So that shows there's a huge gap between a five-year-old vessel and a new build. And in this environment, we don't see a lot of new builds, right, because of the environmental regulatory uncertainty with IMO 2030, with the shipyard capacity shrinking, with the access to capital, as we've been discussing, shrinking. So I think a lot of people are now looking at, well, the five-year-old vessels are a lot cheaper. They're already on the water. They're yeah. not adding to the order book. Um, they have, uh, you know, they still have at least 10 years of life before they become obsolete. Whereas if you order a new build, you're not getting it till 2023, maybe 2024. So you might have six years of true life. Yeah. Um, so because of that, we think there will be a big push into the secondhand tonnage, which will push up asset values, which will push up net asset values, which a lot of these tanker and dry ball companies trade on. Okay. But since you mentioned environmental regulations, a very broad uh, topic in many ways for shipping, because uh, when uh, 
these days we're talking about the new investment cycle because the industry is facing new decarbonization goals just as uh, just as you said and um, uh, thinking about the next fuel which would be applicable globally probably and uh, the main problem here is as a lot of players agree is there seems to be no current solution for long-term decarbonization decarbonization goals so whatever investment you make in the fleet is quite a risky bet whether you go for lng or you want to try uh, things like hydrogen or ammonia which is might much tougher for big uh, segment segments like the lccs or cape size or anything like that or any um, big uh, big vessel segment for that matter so the question the question is uh, considering all that the next investment cycle in new tonnage first of all when is it going to happen and what do you think is going to be the darling for investment which type of engine or fuel and which segments in dry bulk and uh, tankers yep uh so great questions there so we see the the kind of real near-term push will be on dual fuel kind of lng powered ships right the infrastructure is there you can find lng Obviously, uh, all around the U.S. Gulf, you can find LNG in, in Asia, throughout Europe, um, you know, even in the Middle East with Qatar and others producers there, um, down in Australia, obviously. So you can fill up your vessel if it's running, uh, if it's using LNG as your, your fuel source, you can fill it up anywhere. So that's a big uh, component of what fuel will be used. So we have seen in the past probably year or so, um, and we'll see for sure, continued ordering in this uh, using this fuel. Now, Wartzilla and some other engine manufacturers are, you know, certainly building out their uh, proficiencies in these LNG-powered ships. So I think that's going to be, over the next three to five years, your, your certainly your focus on kind of uh, hitting these IMO 2030 goals. Now, if you ask me in 10 years, it could certainly go to hydrogen or ammonia, uh, right, or battery-powered ships, who knows? Um, but I think we're at least five, if not 10 years away from those. Just again, the infrastructure isn't there. The technological know-how isn't there. The, the cost of those vessels would mm. be much, much higher. Yeah. So unless you have a, a willing and able counterparty, like we've seen in the LNG front where Shell says, hey, we need 10 LNG-powered VLCCs. And you have a handful of tanker owners say, OK, yeah, we'll do two, we'll do four, we'll do two, you know, yeah. whatever the case may be. Um, you have to have some very, very long term charters with some guaranteed returns to go and build a ammonia powered chip or a hydrogen powered chip. And we think that's at least, like I said, five to 10 years away. So we think uh, LNG will be the focus uh, in terms of asset classes. Got to be the bigger ships, right? Got to be the, the VLCCs, got to be the cape sizes. Uh, we've seen it already on the very large container ships as well. So the big fuel burning ships that are going to the big ports, right? The ones in U.S. Gulf, um, you know, Singapore, um, Europe, the Middle East Gulf, um, Australia, where the LNG is, right, to kind of refuel. But what do you think regarding the long levity of uh, LNG as a solution, especially if you... Uh, thinking of the investment, so if you investing in a, du a dual fuel LNG powered vessel uh, right now, and this is a considerable investment by by any accounts, uh, or sp especially in the, for the big vessels, and then let's say in five years uh, after your new build is delivered, you're facing with the problem of um, 
looking for another solution, maybe something more long term for long decarbonization goals. Do you think people might slow down, uh, like just looking at this and thinking about this, slow down and ordering LNG powered vessels and rather wait, run with scrubbers, run with something else until there is a you know better application of hydrogen or ammonia? Or you still believe there's going to be quite a investment into LNG after all? Yes and no. Like I, I think most of the investment dollars will be in LNG. Mm. That said, I do not think there will be a big surge in new build ordering, right? Yeah. At least uh, at least for the next one to three years, um, just until people get a little more comfortable with IMO 2030, even IMO 2050. But but again, that's you know 25 uh, years away, even yeah. if you order to ship next year, right? So even if you order to ship next year, it will certainly be gone by 2050. Um, so the, the real focus will be IMO 2030. And until we get some more clarity and visibility around that, um, I don't really see a huge surge in ordering um, to get ahead of that. So that's why we're, we're pretty constructive on the shipping markets for the next handful of years, because the order book to fleet ratios are very low. There hasn't been much ordering for all the factors we've discussed here recently um, in recent years. So that has really drawn down the order books, and that means that the supply growth over the next few years will be pretty low. Will there be ordering? Absolutely. And I think most of that ordering will be on the LNG-powered ships, um, or at least eco-friendly, mostly with scrubbers, all of these things. But until you get some more visibility and some more certainty around the timing of IMO 2030 um, and other things, and, and maybe there's a new like global speed limit uh, that gets put into place and you can only go 10 knots or something like that. Obviously, that would be uh, a drastic reduction in carbon emissions. Mm. Same thing in your vehicle. You know, if you're driving 70 miles an hour versus 50, um, you're using a lot less fuel burn. So uh, because of those efficiencies, we do think there will be some slowdown of the fleet as well, which also would reduce the effective supply um, of the global fleets, which should be bullish uh, for the uh, shipping rates. But here's the problem, right? So uh, coming back to the beginning of our conversation, we have ship owners who are sitting on more cash than they used to not so long ago. And time and time again, we've seen throughout at least the last decade, even um, after like hard times and terrible earnings and everything looking super gloomy, you have an increase in rates for a while, uh, slightly better a forecast in terms of it can only go up yeah? yeah and at the same time you're sitting on a bunch of cash and times and times again we've seen ship owners just you know going for uh, a shopping spree yeah no matter yeah. Yeah. no matter what it is and that's why i wonder it all makes sense what you say but do you think that this psychological sentimental uh, factor might just go in and play a role again and we might see an increase in orders just from from people having more cash than they used to a year ago. Yeah, yeah, no, there's a few things. One is, you know, you you say that, and that has certainly happened in the past. Um, but there's a few factors that are certainly at play now that haven't been at play in the recent kind of super cycles of rates and of new build activity. You know, shipyard capacity is lower now than it was three years ago, five years ago, ten years ago. Access to capital, as you mentioned, is lower now than it was five to 10 years ago. Um, You have this IMO 2030 uncertainty. You didn't really have that five or 10 years ago. Um, And then I think the bigger thing is you also have investors saying, look, 
don't buy new builds. Go and buy second hands. And you've seen this, right? You've seen this. We cover 30 different shipping companies in our coverage universe. And I think, I don't know, four, maybe five have ordered new builds in the last year. A lot have bought secondhand vessels, so you can still expand your fleet. Again, uh, going back to my point where the five-year asset value um, is at a big discount to the new build price, bigger than it's been in you know a, a long time. So, And those vessels are on the water immediately. Right? You don't have to wait 18 months, 24 months to get it. So a lot of the expansion we've seen has been via secondhands. And then, you know, especially on the public ship owners, People are looking for, you know, dividends now, share repurchases now, again, which we've seen, again, out of the 30 names we cover, I think five or six started a new dividend uh, in the last year that hadn't paid dividends in the last five years, right? Um, And I think 17 of the 30, or maybe even 18 now, have repurchased shares in the last 12 months. Again, something you didn't see in 2016 to 2019, right? So it kind of shows that there is some capacity discipline, some constraint. Will there be ordering? Absolutely. But again, when your order book to fleet ratios are 10% on average um, currently, with the five-year average at 15%, with the 10-year average at 20-plus percent, yeah, I, I think the order books will tick up a little. But again, a lot of that will be replacement tonnage. Look at all the vessels that were ordered in 2003, 4, 5, 6, 7. Eight, right? So those vessels are about to be turning 20 years of age in the next three to five years. Mm-hmm. So a lot of those will have to, you know, they're inefficient. They're big gas guzzlers. Um, you know, the, the design is far inferior to where current ship designs are. So even if you do get that, you know, order book to fleet ratio getting back to 15%, which isn't huge, uh, we also think scrapping could go up to three, if not 5%. Per year, right? And that 15% order book is spread out over two, two and a half years. Mm. So let's just conservatively say it's spread out over two years. That's 7.5% gross fleet growth. But if you're taking off 4% on the scrapping, net fleet growth of 3.5%, that's fine. Okay, but let's and then circle back to freight rates themselves, right? Uh, to, to finish this up. Uh, Considering all that you said, and we like uh, might might see this discipline in the ordering and more scrapping potentially, we still have a situation where the demand in uh, both tankers uh, and dry bulk is still quite uncertain. We live in wild times, right? Where and and if anything can happen at any time, and recovery, for instance, in in the oil and petroleum products demand is not uh, near the pre-pandemic levels yet, and when will this actually have a long-term sustaining effect on the freight rates? So are we going to see some proper change in 2021 for tankers have sustainable growth or for dry bulks instead of going up and down, again, having sustainable growth as fleet supply um, drops uh, in growth and the demand recovers? Or are we talking three years or five years? Yep, we think it will be a gradual thing, right, with higher highs and higher lows. There will certainly and always be seasonality, right? So you can't, uh, rates aren't just going to go up and to the right, um, you know, sequentially. Now, we think year over year, they could go up and to the right over the next handful of years. 
So we think the kind of rate um, stabilization happens this year, if not last year, right, uh, following just the, the complete craziness, especially in tankers last spring. But we think rates kind of stabilize and just slowly and steadily keep improving. Now, there will be these kind of demand spikes that shoot rates up and then, the you know, the market stabilizes and rates come back down. But mm-hmm. just looking at kind of quarterly averages on year over year comparisons, we think the the next, I don't know, 12 to 16 quarters, um, the vast majority of those should be up on a year over year basis. Great. Thanks, Randy. That was very insightful and a pleasure as always. And to everyone who, who listened, you can always go and check more episodes of Weight of Freight uh, content series at on Argus website. Thank you so much, Alex. And yeah, if there's any other follow-up questions, um, audience can reach out to me, Randy Givens. It's R Givens at Jeffries.com. So thanks again. Thank you.